You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Praise the Lord, my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it's gone. And its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. And his righteousness with their children's children. With those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works, everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Lord, again, we thank you for your word, and we pray that as we hear what you have to say to us, that each of us would have open minds, open hearts, obedient wills, and that we would be renewed in our spirits by your spirit. In your name, amen. Well, as Tim knows, Daniel is a precious gift, and every child is a precious gift. And I know that to every parent, every child is, you know, their child is the cutest and the nicest and, and all the rest of it. Um, I want us to think about, we as a church, with the children that we have, it was very, very uh, wonderful actually to be here with people praying yesterday morning for the children in the church. And, and something that Sinclair said at the last Solas Day uh, really has remained with me every week where he said, it takes a church to bring up a child. And for those of you who say, well, I don't have any children, if you're part of this church, you do. You actually do. Um, as I said, I, I'd count it 46, but there's more than that. Uh, and they, they in, a, in a very real sense, are your children as well. So I want us to look at just something very straightforward and very simple as to the, the place of children and um, the covenant blessings. We're, we're a church that believes in the covenant. Now, I know that uh, some of you here are uncomfortable let's put it that way, with uh, children being baptized. You think that's for adults only. And that's a dispute that Christians have had for many years 
Uh, I'm pretty certain we won't have it in heaven, but I'm not sure that one group are going to be there going, ah, I told you, we were right after all. I think maybe we both got it wrong in, in, in different ways. But uh, if you are uh, someone who believes that baptism is for adults only, then uh, we honor and respect you in that view. There are many of our brothers and sisters. Uh, we don't think you're any less of a Christian for that. But I think what I'm going to say this morning applies to all of us, whether we believe in infant baptism or not. Because those of us who believe in infant baptism don't believe that the baptism saves people. Same as I hope if you're an adult Baptist only, you don't believe adult baptism saves people. But we do believe that the children are part of the church. They are not the church of the future. They're part of the church now. So I want to just go through the psalm, think of two things in particular. The first we're going to look at is um, the benefits that we have, the blessings that we have from God's covenant, from God. And I've just picked out five of them from this psalm, which I think reflect the theme of the psalm. And I'm really just going to list them because they're it's this concept of God as our Father. And I know that that's a cliche, and I know it's very simple for people. Just You can, you can just say, oh yeah, the, our Father, which are in heaven, and so on. And we take it far too much for granted. But actually, God as the creator of the whole universe, as our Father, is the most amazing concept and thought. I'm reading uh, Brian Cox's book just now on the human universe. And in some senses, it's brilliant because it's talking about the universe and how wonderful and all the scientific discoveries we've made. But in another sense, it's immensely sad because Cox starts with a premise and he finishes with that same premise. And it's just simply this. He believes that uh, human beings are in effect the center of the universe and that we are the only, we're the only place in the universe where there is love. And as Christians, we believe something very, very, very different. We believe that God is love and that our love is derived from him. And that's when we talk about God being our father, we're talking about him being the ultimate parent. And look what he gives us. He forgives, verse 3, who forgives all your sins. Verse 10, he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. I know many of you here, I don't know all of you, but I will guarantee I know this about every single person in this building. You need forgiveness. There are people in this building who you need forgiveness from, people who you have hurt, people who I have hurt. There are people out with this building you need forgiveness from. You need, in a sense, sometimes forgiveness from yourself. But most of all, you need forgiveness from a holy God. Because another thing I know about every single person in this building, including myself, is that we have sinned. And we have not just made mistakes, but we have gone against God. And without his forgiveness, we could not approach him. Without his forgiveness, we could actually not live. And it is wonderful that in this song, here is a God who forgives. Think about it in the sense, for those of you who are parents, how when you, you're bringing up your child, you want to discipline them, you want to show them the right way. What do you do when they get it wrong? Do you say, that's it? I mean, how many parents here operate a three strikes and you're out policy? 
Okay, three strikes and you go to bed policy, and it's fair enough. But you get up in the morning, you come back down, we'll still give you breakfast. But three strikes and you're no longer my child. That's, that's not going to happen with, with anybody. Well, think of God as our father. He doesn't forgive us because he has to. He gives us, forgives us because he loves us, and he's provided the means for that forgiveness. Which is the second thing, verse 4. He redeems us. He redeems your life from the pit. He rescues and saves us because we all need salvation. And I think that's just one of the greatest, greatest things about being a Christian. If you're not a Christian, I I want you to grasp and to understand this, that to be saved, it's not some religious experience or some religious cliche. It is the real essence of being human, to be rescued from ourselves, to be rescued from this evil world, to be what the Bible calls redeemed, to be bought back. That's what we remember as we take communion. And then verse 4, he crowns you with love and compassion. Verse 13, as the father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Isn't that an extraordinary picture of God coming to us, coming to you with your guilt and your sin and your weakness and your pathetic circumstances sometimes and all your difficulties and all your troubles and God comes and he crowns you. He puts a crown on your head, a crown of love and a crown of compassion. I think that's just, again, just such a wonderful picture. And so in verse 5, he satisfies our desires. He satisfies your desires with good things. God gives us desires. And he satisfies them in a way which does not negate them. Because here's the problem. If you try and satisfy the desires you have as a human being, and you leave God out of the picture, then what's going to happen is this. You're going to negate those desires. You're going to turn them into something bad. If we try and satisfy our desires in a sinful way, it is like trying to satisfy thirst by drinking salt water. It doesn't work. It only increases the desires. You can see that in many examples. Classic example would be um, the God-given gift of sex. Now, if you follow our society's teaching on that, it's you've got an appetite, go fulfill it. But how many people are fulfilled by following the standards and the teaching of our culture on sex? They're not. It's, in, it's a right use of the word to say it's perverted and destroyed the gift that God has given. So much so that some Christians bounce back and react and say, oh, no, 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 we don't want to talk about that. I love St. Augustine. I really love St. Augustine. But I'm absolutely certain Augustine got it completely wrong on the Bible and sex. It's the only thing I can think of he got, well, baptism as well, he got that wrong too. But apart from that, (laughs) he pretty well, everything else is just wonderful in Augustine. You're never going to have your desire satisfied if you try to satisfy them without God. Think of that in terms of drink as well. Why do people get drunk with alcohol? Is alcohol a curse? Is it, is it, should, is, is it something that we should have nothing to do with? Well, Psalm 104 tells us that 
we are to give thanks to God for the wine that makes glad the heart of a man. And when we take communion, we take communion with wine because that's what Jesus used. Alcohol in and of itself is not bad. The misuse of alcohol is bad. Getting drunk is bad. Abusing alcohol is bad. So much so that for some people, they can never go and should never go anywhere near alcohol. Alcohol won't satisfy your desires. The wrong use of God's gifts won't satisfy your desires. God only satisfies your desires. And then verse 17, he cares for our children. And I just love this, where it says, his righteousness, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. God has no grandchildren. So my granddad used to tell me, which I I always thought was interesting. It was my granddad that taught me that the most. Um, In one sense, that's true. But in another sense, God is a God of grace and God makes promises and he does care for our children. Why would you bring a child into this world if you believe that God did not care for your children? I don't understand that. This world in many ways is a horrible place. When you realize your own weakness, when you realize how fragile that child is, when you realize that you're not the perfect father or the perfect mother, you would be paranoid, I think, paralyzed rather, with worry if you didn't believe that God was watching over your child. And I believe that absolutely with all my heart. In speaking to Daniel and using that blessing from the French Reformed Church, little child, Jesus is dead for you. I mean that absolutely. I know that Daniel doesn't hear and understand that, but I know he'll grow up in a home where he'll be taught what that means. It's pronouncing a blessing. Many times in the Bible, blessings are pronounced upon people, sometimes in the future, who do not hear them immediately or perhaps do not understand them. But God's blessing, who's that for? It's for those who fear him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now we find that a kind of strange thing. We we like the idea of the love of God and then in comes this. From everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. Well, what, what does that mean? If you don't fear God, you will end up with fear in another way. Um, I, I was fascinated. I looked this up again because I'd, I'd mentioned this before. So I looked up to see if it's any different and it's still basically the same. The worst country in Europe in terms of children watching television is the United Kingdom. 75% of children have a TV in their bedrooms or a personal computer or an iPad. They spend at least five hours per day watching television or the internet. At least that. And one of the main reasons for that is this, is that parents are afraid their children are going to get hurt. And I do think that part of that is a consequence of rejecting Christianity and Christian teaching. That we allow our fears to be media driven and we have an inadequate concept of the world. I don't know what the word is. There is a word for the fear of falling out of trees. I didn't have it as a boy. I was allowed to climb trees. I loved climbing trees. Those trees out there are just absolute dream trees to climb because they're quite difficult to get up so that once you get up them, it means that your mum and dad can't get you down. 
uh, they can't get to you normally because they're too hard for older people to climb up. But there is a fear of falling out of trees. I think last year, two people died in the whole of Britain out of 65 million from falling out of trees. And yet, in many cases, people say, no, you can't climb a tree. Don't climb a tree. Don't have anything. You could fall out the tree. Something could happen to you. You're more likely to die from rollerblading than you are from falling out of trees. Out of love, parents will ban their children from climbing trees. Out of love, parents will stop their children doing lots of things, some of which you can completely understand. Skateboarding on the motorway is probably not the best idea, and no parent would let their child do it. But it's sad when parents keep their children at home, only allow them to go in safe, supervised environments like the cinema or whatever. And yet when I look to the statistics, it doesn't make sense. Your child is five times more likely to be injured or die at home than outside. And anyway, never mind the statistics. It's harmful. How can a child learn without risk and adventure? Watching Danny McCaskill do his wonderful bike tricks on, uh, uh, on Sky is just wonderful. If you don't know who Danny McCaskill is, Google him and just watch his latest thing going a, a, across the, the mountains and sky. It's just incredible. Watching that is wonderful. But if you sat, no matter how big the screen, no matter how high density it was, and that's all that you did, you watched Danny McCaskill. You never went on a bike. You never climbed a mountain. You never did anything yourself. Then there would be something wrong. So how does the fear of the Lord come into all of this? I just would say this. Our first and only fear, ultimately, must be God. And by that, I don't mean that we're afraid in some kind of cowering way. But our desire is to please and to honor him. And as regards our children, it means that we as parents take the responsibility for our own children. The Bible says that they are a gift from God. And we are responsible for them. Not the church not the state. Now, the church and the state can and should help. That's why we have a Sunday school. That's why I hope we support and, and help one another and babysit and so on. That's why the state provides doctors and teachers and nurses and social workers, because we don't live in paradise, and there are parents who will neglect their children, and sometimes others have to intervene. If you see a child being, into, being, being abused, you don't just shrug your shoulders and say, well, that's none of my business. That's the parent's responsibility. No, it is our responsibility. We live in a community. But it also means that we are concerned not just about the material well-being, but also their emotional and intellectual well-being and their spiritual well-being. If you're a parent, do you get concerned when your child is sick? Of course you do. When they need new shoes, do you want to buy them? Of course you do. When they're upset because of something that's happened to them at school, are you upset? So you should be. But I just simply ask this, are you as concerned about their spiritual well-being as you are about their physical well-being? We pray and we teach and we catechize, if you like, and we live by example. It's been said, and I think it's true, that the greatest gift you can give a child is a godly mother. To have a mother who prays for you and a mother who cares for your soul. I would only add a caveat to that. 
that of equal value to that is a godly father. Because the way that sometimes Christian men have handed over responsibility for their children to their wives is absurd in a spiritual context. In the biblical teaching, and I don't have time to go into this, but the man is the head of the household. Not, he's not the guy who's bigger and stronger and earns more money and is, pays all the bills and all that. That's nonsense. He's the head in the fact that he is the spiritual head and has the ultimate responsibility. So we fear the Lord, and because we fear the Lord, we love and serve him through teaching and helping our children. Those who keep his covenant, verse 18 says. Now I'm just going to say just a little thing about that covenant. Just very simple from the text with us. First of all, it's God's covenant. It's not our deal. We don't go to God and say, right, we're going to do this if you do this and you do this. God comes to us. Secondly, it requires faith on our part. Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant was not a covenant of works. It was a covenant of faith. It's the example used by Paul in Romans. It's the example used in Galatians 3. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You bring your children up in the faith of God, not fear of man. Thirdly, the covenant has a promise. The promise that on the day of Pentecost, Peter, when he preached, said this promise is for you and for your children and for all whom the Lord our God will call. And we as believers claim God's promises for our children. And fourthly, it has a sign that it's the sign in the Old Testament was circumcision. In the New Testament, it's baptism. It was a sign that signified death to sin. It was a sign that it was God's mark on the child. That's one of the problems we so often have with baptism. That uh, people misunderstand. They think baptism is my witness to God. No, it's not. Baptism is God's seal on you. It's God's mark on you. That's what circumcision was, and that's what baptism, which has replaced it, now is. It is God's mark given to children who are holy. And who are the children that are holy? 1 Corinthians 7 tells us. Your children. A child where one, it was in that context, it was speaking of a home where one parent was a believer. Your children are holy. Now, isn't that extraordinary? Imagine if you're in a, the Old Testament temple and you go into the Holy of Holies or you have Aaron's holy garments or people talk about the Holy Bible, but you have a holy child. Now, sometimes you're thinking a holy horror, but you have a holy child. That child is precious and set apart for God. And that is wonderful. But of course, giving the sign is not enough. In the Old Testament, they recognize that as well. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts, you men of Judah and people of Jerusalem, or my wrath will break out and burn like fire because of the evil you have done. Burn with no one to quench it. Or Deuteronomy 10, 16. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Deuteronomy 36. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. In the Old Testament, God's people were told, this is the sign, but it's no use without the thing signified. And in the New Testament, that's the same. Whether baptized as a child or an adult, 
the amount of water, the timing is irrelevant if you are not baptized by the Holy Spirit. If you do not have spirit baptism, which is not a secondary experience for believers. It is being baptized into the body of Christ. It's becoming a believer. And one of the things we plead for more than ever for our children is that they would be regenerate, born again of God's Holy Spirit. When that happens, we don't know. We don't know. Some people, it's like Jeremiah and John the Baptist from the womb, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And other people, I've known people who have grown up in a Christian home, grown up with godly parents, completely rebelled, turned away, gone very much the opposite way. And it's only been much, much later in life that they have returned and God's spirit has worked in their life. We have to circumcise our hearts. And maybe I'll leave it with uh, this from Colossians where these things are compared. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you are also circumcised, in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You see how all that comes together, how all that connects, that we have the signs, we have the symbols but they are signs and symbols of something that is real. They themselves are not the real thing. They are signs and symbols of the reality of God's spirit working in our lives, working in us as a covenant community, working in us as covenant families. And I think for all of us, it's essential and necessary that we pray that the Lord would circumcise our hearts, that the Lord would fill us with his Holy Spirit, that the Lord would help us to realize the reality of the symbols that we observe and receive. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Bless it to us and help us as we think about it and as we sit together at your table, for we ask it in your name. Amen. Now we're going to sing again Psalm 103. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. 
Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.